Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I knew going to the Iconic was going to make me a better business person because I was going to learn a whole new skill set that I hadn't learnt around, you know, pure play digital and, and et cetera. I was going to see it from the inside out. What I didn't fathom was that I was going to become a better person. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Today, we are thrilled to have Erica Birchtold, the CEO of one of Australia's, if not the prominent, preeminent Australian online retail porter, the Chief Executive Officer of The Iconic. G'day and welcome. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill because retail has been in such a state of flux for a long time. How did COVID affect you? It forced the rest of us to down tools, stay home, internalise and just live in the online space. Would I be right in saying that was good for The Iconic? Well, Firstly, I would love to have a dollar every time said to me, you must have loved COVID because online must have been booming, etc. Now, COVID wasn't ultimately a disaster for our business, but when it first hit and we were a business that was really skewed towards dresses and heels and fashion product, and then everyone got told to stay home, guess what they didn't need to buy anymore? Dresses and heels and fashion product. So we had to pivot pretty quickly. Uh, Fortunately, as you know, uh, it's not that long ago that we were a startup. We're only 11 years old this year. So, you know, kind of agile is our middle name. So we were able to pivot pretty quickly and say, right, okay, what assortment do we need to get for our customers? So let's get some Birkenstocks, some Ugg boots, some tracksuits, things like that in. Um, let's introduce the beauty category a little more quickly than what we had already known that we were going to, to get into. And let's just change that assortment plan uh, rapidly and and then we found that COVID was actually a much better time for us. So, In terms of marketing, did you have to pivot there as well? Because I would imagine, you're right, people think of the iconic for luxury, fashion and, um, you know, looking glam Mm. and that's what you didn't feel during COVID. Yeah, I mean, we did a lot more social content I guess with our own team so you know Mother's Day campaigns I remember Mother's Day 2020 all of a sudden you couldn't do studio shoots you couldn't get models or anything so we actually got our team members to actually film content of themselves at home with their kids and we used that in our campaigns what was really interesting was not just the pivot we needed to do in the content but things like time of day so where we used to do a lot of marketing or we found a lot of people looking at our app on the commute on the way to work. So that kind of 7.30am to 9am time, that was just dead because everybody was at home and they're still having their coffee and breakfast at 7.30 in the morning when you're in lockdown. So then it was more lunchtime and then it was looking at where they were looking at our business. So where it used to be on the app on their mobile phone, 
We found a lot more desktop viewing because people are at home on their computers at their home office desk or on their dining table or whatever your situation was. So then how you present content to people had to change a little bit as well because of the medium that they were looking at that in. So a lot of learnings that we had through that time, a a lot. Can I assume you relied on metrics and data to point you in the right direction? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I have spent over 20 years in retail and the start of my career was bricks and mortar predominantly. It's just been the last three years that I've been working for a pure play. And people ask me, what's the biggest difference between a bricks and mortar retailer and a a pure play? And I would say data. The amount of data you have is just whole next level. And actually, you could become quite crippled by the amount of data and just be really overawed by it all and not know what to do with it. My eyes want to glaze over, but I do know it's so important. You have to get your head around it. Did you have any upskilling for yourself you had to do to manage the data and make sure you understood it? and could extract the information you needed, or was it best to employ people to do that? Look, in a lot of my space, I'm more the person behind the scenes ensuring that we've got the right people on board because there's better experts. I can't be the expert on everything. The role I play as a CEO is more to use my natural curiosity and ask the questions that our very clever people will end up going and, and finding answers for, and then actually they will come up with even more clever questions on the back of, you know, what they have found. So I am reluctant to jump in there and be the expert. Uh, Our marketing team, if they're listening to this, they would know how often I try and be the creative director and that (laughs) never works out well for us. So, yeah, no, it's about uh, getting the right people on board. Well, coming out of COVID, what are the trends that are emerging? Well, fashion is really doing well right now. Again? Yeah, yeah. And why so, do you think? Just because we're back at the office or we actually can get out and we can travel? It's even dressier stuff than what you would wear to the office. So, um, yeah, dressy dresses, heels, bags, jewellery. I think if you think this time last year in Sydney, we were in lockdown. Like we're about to come up to the first proper kind of summer, spring that we've had in a few years where we know we're not going back into lockdown again. You know, they've just shortened the isolation periods from seven days to five days. So I think everybody feels like life is just maybe going to be a little bit fun again. And yeah, they're embracing some fashion because they haven't really had a reason to buy any over the last few years. When it comes to online shopping these days, the world is your oyster. How do you compete with the big international pure plays, as you call it? I've never heard that expression before. I believe we have the best assortment in terms of brands here in Australia from an online perspective and actually from a bricks and mortar perspective. We have 1,500 brands on site and we have 165,000 products. Every day we're loading 500 new products onto our site. So assortment, we're stacking up against all of those big international sort of players. And then we really come into our own from the delivery proposition. So we can deliver next day to 70% of Australia. In Sydney, we offer three-hour delivery, same-day delivery, So the delivery proposition we have is so much better than what any of the internationals can offer. And then, you know, we we have the ranges that are relevant for this time of year. We've got all of our new season party dresses, summer wardrobes, etc. You know, whereas a lot of the internationals are working in different seasonalities, I guess. I just got back from a trip to the States and uh, I had a week in Houston and, and I did a bit of, you know, retail therapy. And the fashion floors in Saks Fifth Avenue in Houston, there was so much Aussie content. It was just wonderful to see. In fact, I didn't see a lot of US content I wanted to buy. And then I thought, why am I buying this here when I can buy it at home? 
How do the Kiwis stack up? Because they have wonderful fashion labels as well. Where's the biggest trade? Which way? Which direction is it across the ditch? At this stage, I mean, we have some of the New Zealand designers on board, but not all of them. I mean, there's some fabulous New Zealand designers that, um, you know, I've been talking to our fashion team saying, can we go and get this one, this one, this one? Just from a personal perspective, I want to buy them from us. So right now for us, I guess the business would be more us selling over to New Zealand rather than them selling to us at this stage. But I think there's a really big opportunity there. When I think of a brand like the Iconic, I think of logistics. You know, so you offer this incredible delivery plan and and I didn't know you could do it in three hours, which is very good to know. (laughs) We've all got those moments, those emergencies where you think, oh, I can't get to the shops, but if I could quickly order it now and it's going to be home when I get home. That's wicked. That's actually insane. But logistically, how hard is it to get that side of the business right? How big a part is that of your business? Look, it's half of our business. So we have around 1,100 team members and half of them would be out at our fulfilment centre in Yonora here in Western Sydney. And look, it's a, it's a huge focus. But I, I think a lot of people feel that online, because we're just on a computer, that you know, when I tell them that we've got 1,100 employees, like, what do they all do? I'm like, what do you think they do? Like, we've got buyers, we've got marketing teams, HR teams, finance, and then we've got half of our team out there at Yonora. You've got stock coming in, you've got stock needing to go out to customers, you've got returns coming back from customers, stock going back to suppliers. So there's a lot of activity that happens there. I think people also think online, oh, all you need to do is just get an Australia Post account and then anyone can, you know, do what the Iconic does. Well, from the time that an order is placed and that goes to the warehouse, like the fulfilment centre, gets picked, packed in a satchel, ready for dispatch, is under eight minutes. Eight minutes? Yeah. So when you've got a three-hour delivery window, giving your courier partner as much time as possible to fulfil that is really important. So us getting to eight minutes is really important because that gives them two hours 52 to be able to get that all around Sydney. Now, you took up the role as the CEO of the Iconic in 2019. You were five months pregnant at the time, and it was your first job as a CEO. What was your biggest learning in those early days? Oh, I think my biggest learning was just not to overthink things. Like, you know, if you actually stopped and thought about that situation, I mean, it's even too mad for me to get my head around, right? So it's actually just just trust yourself, get on with it, just get in develop relationships with people, ask questions and and just back yourself. I talk to a lot of CEOs and have done over the years and, you know, and arguably married to one. And they all tell me that the hardest part of the job is actually managing people. Mm. And that's the biggest part of their job is managing people. And, you know, you've got to really be a compassionate leader to get the best out of your team. What have you found? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I don't do everything myself. So my primary job is to establish the kind of best team that I can. And you need to create an environment that those sort of people want to come and work for you and actually stay working for you and representing the interest of, you know, the business. So I have an excellent executive team. I invest a lot of time with them. And then there's other little things that I've learnt along the way. So years ago, so I have uh, an executive coach that I've known for nearly 20 years. Her name's Leslie Simons. Big shout out to her. She's awesome. She introduced me to, it's like a preference profile thing called HBDI, right? And it talks about what your preferences are as a person. And so I'm a yellow red person, so I'm big picture and people. Less about the detail and the organisational skills and the, the data, so to speak. And 
it just taught me so much about what are my preferences, how do I complement, you know, not I, I'd be really inefficient if I just employed clones of myself because we'd never get anything done. We'd never get a meeting organised because that's not my skill set. So learning to recognise your own strengths, recognise where there's opportunities, how to complement your own skills with other people around you and then build that really open, transparent, trusting sort of environment. I think my executives would say that we have that, that they feel from a psychological safety perspective, they feel that that is really there. They would say that we can have open and honest conversations. We don't always agree with everything, but that's actually part of the joy of life. <laughs> not, not always just, you know, agreeing with everyone. Yeah, we'd be too boring if we were yeah. all the same, wouldn't we? Yeah. And you've and got you to know, challenge each other. That's it. And just remembering sometimes, like, you could really get straight to the point of just, you know, you're having a one-on-one with someone and you could be like, what have you done this week? Where's these numbers at? Where's this at? Actually, I make a really big conscious effort to just sometimes say to people, how are you? How are you feeling this week? What's happened? Let's go for a coffee. Let's go for a walk or whatever. And, and don't worry about that list, that to-do list that you need to talk to me about. That'll come later. But let's just talk about you. It's amazing how much people appreciate just you asking that question. And so I think that helps build the relationships that you need. And, and, um, and for me, that's part of my authenticity as a leader, I think, that I actually really do care about people and, and I like to you know, find out how they're going and feeling. And while that ticks all the right boxes, realistically, it's a very draining part of the job because you have to be there for your ELT, your executive leadership team. You actually have to be there emotionally, psychologically, financially, and in a corporate sense. How do you manage your time through all of that? Because there's a lot of take from you. Any CEO has to give a lot. Yeah, I, I like my moments of silence, I guess, which um, is not that easy to get because I have three small children. So like I like to go for a run, for example, but I would never listen to music or anything. Like I just need to just be in my head processing thoughts and just, and if I get home sometimes and like the kids have got music playing or TV on or what have you, I just need to go lock myself away for half an hour. I just need someone not to be calling my name or needing to engage me in a conversation, just for a little bit. All the CEOs I talk to say it's just so hard to get staff back in the office after COVID. We're all thrilled it's pretty much over and we're learning to live with it. What challenges are you finding within your office? Does it work well to have the flexible working space? We've kind of focused more on the work that we need to do. For example, when you've got meetings where you need to collaborate across a lot of different categories and make decisions, that's probably better in person than on Zoom. But equally, there's some stuff that can be done on Zoom. And there's all, I don't want people coming into the office to sit there by themselves just doing 200 emails. Like They can do that from anywhere. Our business, you know, average age is late 20s or so. We're quite a young business. And we really did make it work very well during COVID. But I think that's because we had a bit of kind of social capital banked from the prior years. I did notice that that started to dry out a little bit towards the end and people were starting to get a little bit ratty and and so we just recently reintroduced every Thursday afternoon. It used to be Friday Arvos but Thursday afternoon is the new Friday afternoon. So we do drinks at the office and a bit of a business update and everyone gets together and and has, you know, a glass of wine and cheesels. Cheesels are my snack of choice so we always have lots of cheesels. We also recently did a bit of a and all hands where we had everyone in the company come together, listen to the um, strategic plan and, 
just get together and then we went to the slip-in afterwards and had a few drinks and everybody has been raving about it. I think getting back together and connecting socially has been so important for our team and the more we do it, the more they want it. And now we're starting, I mean, even for myself, there was once upon a time where I just found it so easy working from home because, you know, we had to and had to make it work. Now I just can't do it anymore. I've crossed over. I'm back in the office so much and I love it. Like I love the conversations and just running into people like, and talking to people that you might not normally have a meeting with, seeing them in the corridor and say, oh, hey, what are you doing? Or let's go get a coffee. Yeah, at the very heart of it, I think we've all worked out with social beings and you really can't put a price on feeling like a part of a team. Now, you're a big wig in the retail scene and you know it's dominated by women employees but not executives. You're in a business that's mostly run by men. What are the challenges you find in that space? Well, I had some really great role models. Well, one in particular very early on being Katie Page from Harvey Norman. Oh, she's wonderful, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, and so I just didn't question whether I was going to be able to contribute or succeed in retail because I had her as my ultimate uh, role model for, for success. But I guess, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't feel daunted by it. I, I worked in the sport industry for a long time before I was at the Iconic. That was the super retail group? Yeah, so running Rebel. And, you know, literally, I don't think there was a woman running any of the brands that we dealt with. And, it, you know, obviously sport in Australia back then, before we started really trying to push the female agenda for sport, and, and we really did um, support a lot of those codes getting up and running back then, you know, it was very male-oriented. And... I take it back to my high school days, actually. And, you know, I recently was out at my old high school, Cheltenham Girls, talking to some of the business study students. Look, and I, I hate getting into the whole gender argument over schools, single sex versus co-ed. But look, what I will say is for me, it was really great going to a girls' school because every leadership position was taken by a girl. Every first in athletics, first in music, first in arts, whatever, was taken by a girl. So it was just so normal to see girls succeed. And so I just think that set me on a path of just saying, well, of course I can do it, you know, just because there's not many other women there doesn't mean that I can't be one of the first. You've been quoted as saying as pretty much a mantra for you, instead of why me, I've always asked myself, why not me? Yeah. And that's carried you through. Yeah. I, and again, I don't know where I got that, I don't know, confidence, audacity. Well, like it's not arrogance. I assure you of that. Um, because I have my own, you know, self-questioning sort of stuff that goes on, you know, that dialogue in my own head. But, yeah, I've just always thought, well, like, what? you know, actually, I uh, was at my grandmother's funeral. She was 93, marvellous woman. She, she worked in retail, like, you know, on the shop floor at Coles or Farmers or, you know, Fletcher Jones or, or what have you. And I actually, um, writing a eulogy for her, I actually realised how much of an influence she had on me in that, she never used the hardships in her life, and there were a lot, to actually be an excuse or a reason for not succeeding or for being unhappy or anything. She always just kind of said, well, I'm going to let that fuel me to actually be happy and to get on and do things and just have this more, like use my energy for something more productive than just feeling sorry for myself or just giving up. I think she actually influenced me a lot to just go, yeah, why not? Like, get in there, have a crack, and what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to fail? Well, failure's a lesson in itself. It's not really a failure, is it, if you learn the lesson from it? So true. You've also been quoted as saying, while I've never consciously set out to challenge the status quo, 
it's happened and as one of the few female executives in an industry that is mostly women but run by men, there's still a job to be done. What's that job from your perspective? The job is to make sure we're pulling other women through with us, right? Because it, like at the moment, you know, I, I get asked every now and then to join uh, a board for different sort of companies. And I was talking to someone about this recently and they were saying, yeah, there's a lot, like particularly female CEOs are very popular to get pulled up onto board roles because they all want gender diversity and they want, you know, to, us to fly the flag. And, and women that have particularly run retail businesses, like retail's notorious for being hardworking, very diverse, you know, having to pay attention to a lot of different things. You've got to deliver the numbers too. Well, you do, you do. But what's happening is so many women in my sort of roles are stepping up onto boards. It's leaving a real void at the CEO level because we're not developing the people underneath us fast enough to, to replace us if we do step up to those roles. So that's where I spend a lot of time in our business, you know, looking specifically at women that take maternity leave or just women overall, because not every woman wants to have a baby. Actually, how can we escalate their development and really try and promote them and, and make sure that it's not just about me, but there's a lot of other, you know, future me's. So what are some of those tools that you get them to do or engage in? How do you lift them up from being part of your ELT to your potential successor? There's a few things. There's certainly education. So there's courses, whether it be company directors courses or, or other sort of courses. Some of it's exposure. And exposure is really underrated as a development tool. But giving them exposure to myself, the board that I report to, to different meeting forums, I think that is a really useful way for people to just see what that next environment is. I mean, they need to determine that they want to do it. Yeah, right. (laughs) But, you know, giving people those exposure opportunities. And it was actually something Harvey Norman was very good at bringing out in me. You know, they taught me that it wasn't about having the technical capability. Like that was certainly necessary. It was the opportunity to demonstrate it and to demonstrate it time and time again and to do that to different audiences that actually made you stand out from the pack because there's a lot of very clever people in the world. It's whether you can actually demonstrate that and bring people on that journey with you. I guess your background is as a journalist. So in the communication space, you're ahead of the pack. How much has the journalism degree helped you, do you think, reach the level you have? I think journalism, like I say, when I go and speak to these girls at, at various schools, I say to them, if you don't know what you want to do when you leave school, go and do journalism because I think it gives you such great life skills. It teaches you to have a conversation with a stranger. It teaches you to write well. It teaches you to present yourself well. I just think it gives you some skills that are going to be useful in a lot of different forums, whether you end up in a journalism career down the track or not. That's a big push for journalism. I'd never really seen it that way. Mm. And I think it teaches you curiosity as well. I mean, I think you probably need a good dose of that anyway to enter that career in the first place. But I think it teaches you how to go to that. You know, it's like an onion, like taking off the next layer and the next layer and, and then so what? And then what happened from there? So, yeah.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What I do love about the iconic is you've really focused on broadening your reach, and not from a numbers perspective, but from a diversity and inclusion perspective. So we recognised there were some real opportunities in different areas, whether it be First Nation fashion designers, whether it be adaptive wear for people that are, are less able-bodied. We recently launched a modest wear edit, which has done really well and, and one of my favourite edits that, that we've done. We were one of the first to allow shoppers to shop via their favourite sustainability attributes. So, you know, we tend to try and look for things that aren't mainstream but that feel really important to us and I think that comes back to the age of our business as well we're this very youthful energetic business we're only 11 years old and we have a very youthful energetic workforce and I don't need to force these agendas onto our workforce like it's happening anyway isn't it yeah and they, they would demand that of me that you know we have a position on social justice issues, that we are inclusive and offer product to everyone. When it comes to Indigenous issues, you've got quite the offering in First Nations brands and we've got the absolutely gorgeous Narelda Jacobs working at 10 and she's always, she's the showcase for First Nations designers and there are so many emerging designers in the space, aren't there? There are and what we're trying to do is not just offer the the really obvious support that we could give them, which is to allow them to sell on our site. But I feel very passionately about mentoring a lot of these up-and-coming brands and using all of our strength and resources to try and help them. So, for example, can I get my CFO and the finance team to help them with cash flow models? And actually, could we give them different payment terms and pay them a little more quickly because cash is really important to them when they're setting out? Can I get our marketing team to help give them a crash course on digital marketing and set up some templates and things for them? You know, can we give them support in setting up their, I don't know, data analytics or things like that? So we're trying to look for ways that we can lend our support that's more than just, oh, let's put their product on the site and sell it. That's fantastic. It really is. Now, the Iconic uses 100% recycled delivery satchels and was one of the first businesses globally to allow customers to do that. And we did that during COVID, actually. So at a time where we could have just tightened the belt a bit and just battened down the hatches and just, you know, not tried to evolve too much, just try and survive, not evolve, we thought, no, this is actually really important. This was something that we wanted to do. So we're going to push ahead with that and, and with all of those other things we've spoken about, like modest edit, adaptive wear, etc., we just feel that some of those things are too important to just push aside. Now, you had this partnership with Aerobe, accelerating the circular fashion movement. Yeah. What does that mean? Aerobe is a company we partnered with that allows you... So at the time you're purchasing a jacket, we can give you an indication of how much you can resell that for in six weeks' time or two months' time. And what you can do by adding it to your Aerobe wardrobe right then and there, all of that work we've done on photographing it, 
writing the description and, and all of the copy around it gets saved so that when you want to resell it, you've got the image, you've got the description, and you know how much you should be trying to sell that for. WTF? Yeah. Who came up with the concept of Aero? Oh, this, there's this girl, Hannon. Um, I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but Hannon, very clever young lady. Like, she, she is seriously, um, you know, one of these startup sort of young entrepreneurial sort of spirits that just had this sort of dream and and she hunted us down and was like right let's have a partnership and we're like what what the heck is this and then we had our WTF moment and went oh yeah of course we're going to be part of that. What a clever idea because it serves the whole sustainability argument so you will hand over your backlog of information around say a you know let's be crazy for a moment but a YSL jacket that I may have invested in and then I realised I probably only wore it twice and it cost me a fortune, so what can I get for it now? You will gladly hand over your IT so that I can... Where do I sell that? On Aerobe, which is, is really great because if you've ever tried to sell something, you know, writing the description and then, oh, what, what is the sizing on it? Like, and then, you know, trying to take a photo on your iPhone and make that look good to sell to someone to get top dollar is really hard. So if you've got the beautiful photography there as well, then, you know, that just helps you resell that. So, yeah. And you never saw it as any kind of threat to your business? No, I I think it's going to be complementary to the business because these future generations, you know, we're trying to lift out of those cheaper sort of price points. And I mean, we don't play down that low anyway, but you just look at fast fashion. I think the statistic is every, like per capita, Australians purchase 27 kilos of clothing per year and 23 kilos goes into landfill, right? So that's just a revolting statistic. What we want to do is try and actually get it out of landfill, repurpose stuff, get people, like, if you know that you can resell that in a couple of months' time, then you'll probably invest in something a little better quality and a higher price point because you'll net it out and say, okay, well, it's $500 new, but I'm going to get 250 for it in a couple of months, so therefore the net price to me is 250 So hopefully that's what we're trying to test a little bit. I love how encompassing and forward-thinking you are because a lot of businesses, if a similar model was presented, they would see that as a challenge and a competitive price point and probably detrimental to the business. But I gather your view is you need to keep an open mind to stay progressive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I said, these younger generations, um, when I go and speak to the kids at schools, they're so big on the sustainability side of things and they're really pushing me to be more vocal about it and to really get into that space. I'll tell you what's interesting though, I've asked a lot of them, have you heard of this Chinese brand called Sheen? No. Right. It is very, very cheap. I question how something can be made that cheaply from an ethical perspective and materials or whatever. And a labour perspective. Yeah. I, I Look, I'm not accusing them of anything. I just, I don't know how we would be able to make anything that cheaply doing it ethically and with good fabrics, etc. So I said to all of these students, I said, so you're all pushing me about the sustainability stuff, but how many of you have shopped at Sheen in the last, you know, month and like three quarters of the room put their hand up? I said, how can you be holding me to account on sustainability, but you're buying this stuff? And they're, oh, it's cheap. I said, and therein lays the question, right, of sustainability, you know, kind of aims and aspirations versus price. And that's where we need to help play a role to try and tip people over to that sustainability side rather than just the price side. And the more we can make it easy for people to shop that stuff, so we have our considered edit on site where you can shop via sustainability attributes, 
the more we can shift our own product into better fabrications, lift the price points, make sure that we're working with brands so that they are making product with better materials and and better factories, etc. That's the role that we can play and, and we want to take customers on that journey as well and make it really easy for them. You've got the Giving Made Easy initiative, right, where you donate old clothes and you've joined a partnership with the Salvos and Australia Post. Flesh that out for me. When you've got secondhand stuff that you want to donate, I don't know about you, but I I, um, live here in Sydney and I go to the Woolworths car park and you see those charity bins overflowing and it's just, it's horrible, right? And, And I kind of just think, how much of this stuff actually gets used or, or what have you? So we did a partnership with Salvation Army and Australia Post called Giving Made Easy, where literally it could not be easier to give stuff to the salvos. So get your stuff, put it in a box or a satchel or whatever. You go onto our site and just download a label, stick it on that box and just take it to the post office. Done. They send it back to the salvos. That's got to be a cost on your business, though. Someone's got to pay for that postal service. Yeah, but, you know, and Australia Post come to the party a bit there as well. And, you know, we obviously contribute to that. But it's important to us. And it's a really great way to help the Salvation Army. Um, We have another partner called Thread Together as well, where we send a lot of our um, surplus clothing and they help clothe people in need. So whether it be bushfire victims or flood victims or, you know, people that really you know, domestic violence victims, you know, they deal a lot with um, people in that space and, and partners in that space. And yeah, we, we have a really, you know, I, I, knew, I knew going to the Iconic was going to make me a better business person because I was going to learn a whole new skill set that I hadn't learnt around, you know, pure play digital and, and et cetera. I was going to see it from the inside out. What I didn't fathom was that I was going to become a better person because the ethical standards which our team have and which our customers have, it's not that I was a person without ethics or principles before, but when you're suddenly surrounded by so many like-minded people, you push yourselves further, right? You, you just encourage to think, what can we do next? How can we do more of that? Who else could we support? What other sort of edits could we get into on our site? Yeah, it's, it's really made me stop and think about what's important to me and how I can articulate that. So for me, joining the Iconic has just been that wonderful blend of business, but also personal sort of learning. And in in a recent episode, like the floods and and bushfires a couple of years back further, obviously initiatives like Giving Made Easy and Aerobe, et cetera, but particularly Giving Made Easy, the demand must be through the roof. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Actually, when the bushfires were on a few years ago, you know, we're not the biggest, oldest business that can write the biggest checks. We do what we can in that sort of space. But we also try and think about, well, what else could we do to help these partners? Like with Thread Together, we sent our tech engineers out to help rewrite their warehouse management system so they could store all of their donations more efficiently. We used part of our warehouse space for a lot of different charities to be able to store all of the goods, you know, that they, they were having to dispatch to people. And we tried to use our operational efficiencies to help all of these different charity partners. And so, yeah, so we have done a lot in that space and we're constantly using our curiosity to think about how we can add value in other ways. That is so heartwarming, Erica. I can see the warmth and the smile when we talk about all these initiatives, you know, that that comes genuinely from you. Every CEO has to think about the future. What do you think is the future of retail from where we sit right now? 
Are you, you know, confident? Yeah, I, I am confident. You know, I think we have a good, solid, strategic plan with, you know, ambitions to, you know, we've doubled the size of our business in the last three years and I think we'll double it again in the next three. There's going to be some changing consumer behaviours. Like, you know, I mean, you only need to read the newspapers, watch the news to see, you know, economic headwinds coming our way. So it's how do you navigate those sort of things? And, and this is what I love about retail. It, there's a massive dose of psychology in there when it comes to customers. So what are they going to want? Some customers in these harder economic times are just going to slam the brakes on straight away and just go, right, this is all too much for me. I don't have any more money to spend. Whereas there's going to be some customers that are fairly immune to it. They've got no debt. They've got a good paying job. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, of course I want that latest, you know, Miller and Mark jacket or what have you. And then there's probably some people in between that will just be a bit more discerning with their spend. So we've got our big picture plan. We may need to pivot a little bit on the way to getting to that end game, but that's just what we do, you know, just have to adapt. Do you have a lot of brand ambassadors uh, at the Iconic or do you tend to let the social engagement kind of drive the business? We don't have a lot of brand ambassadors per se, but, uh, you know, there's one thing that we've been trialling a little bit lately, particularly for some of our younger customers. They don't like the traditional kind of model shots that we do in studio to show the product. They would rather see that on one of their favourite influencers. So, And this was particularly helpful during COVID when we couldn't really do many studio shots anyway. So we would just send a whole heap of product to the influencers and go, there you go. You guys photograph yourself on it. And they do, you know, they, they're so good at taking their own photos. Yeah, they, they really know their angles. And, you know, the sell-through on that stuff is far greater than if we actually put it on a studio shot. So we do a lot more of that kind of organic social sort of stuff rather than just paid ambassadorships, etc. When you mentioned you had about 500 items a day that had to be uploaded to the site, I think about the logistics of that. Are you generally showcasing your fashion on people or you've got, I presume, a studio running 24 hours a day? Yeah, we have a studio over in Alexandria. Um, there's 13 photographic studios there and they're, they're just constant, like from morning to night. Yeah, all of our fashion product would be on a person on site. And then we've got our homewares, so, you know, the bed linen and things like that, and then beauty products. But there's a million mascaras. There's a million eye colour palettes. Yeah. It just goes on and on. And every single thing has to be photographed. Oh, and copy written for it. So we've got copywriting teams that are just writing, you know, very creative sort of descriptions for a lot of different products. And yeah, so it's, it's a whole... When I actually stop and think about how much we do as a business, it actually blows my mind a little. And this is where I say sometimes you just have to not stop and think about it because actually you, you end up down a rabbit hole of just like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. What have you learned about fashion since you joined the Iconic? For yourself, what have you learned about fashion that works for you? Yeah, I, I've learnt to be a little more casual, I guess, in my fashion. Um, you know, I used to be a much more of a suit and heels sort of person and I can't believe I wear flats a lot now. You know, I think just mixing and matching in my own wardrobe a little bit and then, you know, investing in some really good pieces, just learning what works for you and just knowing that, okay, that that's my kind of look. Like, I'm not the body shape or type to just jump after the latest and greatest trend. Some of that stuff is just not going to look good on me, even if it is the latest trend, right? Actually, just learning to understand your own body and your own, what makes you comfortable in what you're wearing and going, I'm okay with that. And now how do I freshen that look up a bit? 
We have some fabulous stylists that work in our business. So I will go have a bit of a chat to them and say, what's, you know, on trend at the moment? Or, you know, what would you recommend for me? And I I think that's one of the future opportunities for us actually to play that sort of role for our customers. I look at how often I get asked by people like, what's the latest trend? Okay, I've got a niece who's in year 10. She's got a school formal coming up. I'm really lucky. I can email some of the best stylists in our business and say, what are the best brands, shapes, styles, colours? But then that made me think, well, what would you do if you didn't have an aunt that worked for the Iconic? Well, I was going to say, your niece has kind of got the best aunt in the world right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's it. You're a favourite. Yeah, well, I better be because I give her some really awesome Christmas presents (laughs) and birthday presents. (laughs) But, um, But, yeah, you know, for her, that led me to think, well, what do customers do if they want to know? You can't just assume that what they see in the shop window, they know how to interpret for themselves or... So I think that's a future opportunity for us. How long do you think you'll stay at the Iconic? Have you got a, a timeline for yourself? Oh, no. I, look, I love the Iconic. And, you know, as I said, I get approached for different directors' roles. And maybe one day in my future, I'd love to be a professional director. But I've got too much executive energy to actually step into that space. So, yeah, whilst ever they'll have me, I'll be there and I'll just keep running hard at it. Like, I, I can see so many opportunities for our business and I just am so grateful for the lessons I've learned at the Iconic and I feel like it it gave me a bit of a career reboot or a, a refresh joining the Iconic because I just entered such a different world so I, I feel like I've still got my training wheels on so yeah I'm there for a while yet. Excellent well it does sound like it's a culmination of everything you unconsciously had been working towards and congratulations on being the CEO of the Iconic. It is an iconic Australian brand and that's appropriate given you're in charge but also I think you know we're smashed by brands, we're smashed by influences and so many images and you know the demand at the moment for your eyeballs is just never-ending. So I wanted to say congratulations on doing a great job and thanks for spending some time with us here at Chalk Black. Thank you, Sandra. It's been an absolute pleasure. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.